0: This is the Investor Mindset Podcast, and I'm Steven Pesavento. And for as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with understanding how we can think better, how we can be better, and how we can do better. And each episode, we explore lessons on motivation and mindset from the most successful real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the nation. You guys are in store for an incredible interview. I can't even tell you enough. This is a really good one. So real quick, a little housekeeping before we do jump into it. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. Drop a review on iTunes. It does the world for us. And go join us at the Insider Club uh, by going to theinvestormindset.com. You're about the awesome things that we're doing behind the scenes that are going to be really helping grow this community and do amazing things. So... If you're loving what we're doing, please pay us back, pay it forward, drop a review and share it with a friend, help us reach more people and make a big impact in the world. So let's get into this one. It's going to be a good one, guys. All right, guys, welcome back to the Investor Mindset Podcast. Really excited to be here with Kirk Chisholm. How you doing, Kirk? Doing great. How you doing? I am doing well. Kirk is a wealth manager and principal at the Innovative Advisory Group. And he advises clients on anything that affects them financially, including financial planning, risk management, and portfolio management. He's host of the Money Tree podcast, which is huge, bringing knowledge from the top investors from all fields and dives deep into the nuts and bolts and the details. Welcome to the show, Kirk. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is exciting. Yeah, it's exciting to have you here. You've obviously had a lot of success in your job and in what you do as your career. Uh, But why don't we take a look back? What events or influences from your childhood shaped who you are today?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, a lot of us have challenges growing up and I think anybody who has a unchallenged childhood probably didn't really live. (laughs) Um, but you know, I, I know growing up, certainly it was, um, I was always kind of pushed to, to do better. You know, I played sports and it was competitive and, um, when I started in this industry, certainly it was the same way. It was very competitive. And, um, you know, I think a lot of the habits as a child were kind of built into how I operate today. And, you know, I've made a lot of changes over the years to myself and kind of how I go about things as I've learned about myself and, and how better to to do things. So I think that that's been a huge part of how I've grown as a person. is just kind of the way I look at things and always looking for kind of a growth mindset versus more of a fixed mindset.
0: Absolutely. I think some of those challenges that you deal with early in life and throughout life is really what shapes who you are. And so if you think about some of those from your childhood or early childhood, what were some of those challenges?
1: Well, one of the challenges is a huge challenge that I had, which back at the time wasn't really acknowledged, was I had uh, food issues and um, people Uh call them food allergies now. But um, back then I told my allergist, my doctor, I was like, yeah, I think I'm allergic to foods. And he says, oh, that's all in your head. <laughs> I said that oh, doesn't wow. exist. It's all in your head. So I, I have, I had kind of a low opinion of doctors going forward after that. But, um, you know, but I, I knew that I was having some issues and I didn't know what they were. And back then the knowledge wasn't widely dispersed as it is now with the internet. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's really hard to Operate as you know, and grow, and go to school, and and really kind of um, work in challenging environments. When you're working with like one arm or one leg tied behind your back, and for me, food allergies were that. You know, it used to give me brain fog. Which you know, some people have learning disabilities. Um, I would I wouldn't characterize this as a learning disability, but it acted the same way. You know when you yeah. have to read something five times and you can't remember what you just read or trying to memorize something and it just doesn't sink in, but then other days you can look at something once or remember everything like it was just all over yeah. the map, so it was really hard to um there was no there was no like um equilibrium for me it was either highs mm-hmm. or lows and trying to trying to do what I could to to succeed was really challenging, but that helped me build character um in that I knew that my life was going to be challenging and I had to work harder than everybody else just to keep up. So yeah. today, well I've solved some of those problems. Today I still keep that same work ethic and that's that's really helped me.
0: Yeah, that character is built when you have a challenge and you actually go forward and figure out how to solve it. So I'm glad I'm glad that that was a part of your life even though I'm sure part of you wishes you could have changed it, but how did you end up finding, f- figuring that out? I mean, I'm sure some people deal with these same things where it's like, God, I'm just running into this debilitating condition. How did, uh, specifically for you on, on the food front, how did you solve that? Well, it started
1: with figuring out what the p- problem potentially was. You know, at the time, like I said, food allergies didn't exist. And I knew I was allergic to stuff. So basically, you know, a lot of this came down to my dad who helped me a lot and really scientifically test things. So going back and having a, um, a baseline, right, of just having like eating next to nothing, like very simple foods, knowing these foods couldn't be an issue, and then building off of that. And it's not a lot of fun, right? You can't go out drinking, eating pizza with your buddies, um, you know, all the things that, that other people were doing, I had to kind of couldn't really do in the same way. But, um, but I, I had a goal in mind, which was I knew where I wanted to be, and I wanted to be better, and I didn't care what it took. I was going to get there. So I've spent most of my life trying to figure that out. And it wasn't until recently that my, my son was diagnosed with uh, celiac that I figured out what mm-hmm. my problems were. So it's been 40 some odd years of of you know operating at half speed because I didn't realize I was allergic to gluten. And wow. so for me, it's like now I feel like I can conquer the world because all of a sudden I've got I don't have any excuses, and I don't want them. I just want to see what I can do and you know i I want to see how many people I can help out there because I know that from my perspective, I've worked my tail off to get where I am, and I know I could even do better now that I'm kind of freed from that shackle, but at the same time, I also realize like I want to help other people succeed as well because I realize that they may not have the same challenges as me, but they have their own challenges and from my perspective, I want to do what I can to help them overcome those challenges.
0: Wow. It's like your, your dad created his own Whole30 diet, the most <laughs> simplified version, and then let's, let's eat super clean and then kind of layer things back in until you figured out what was doing it.
1: Yeah, um, more or less. I mean, there's a, I guess there's an autoimmune protocol that some people use. It's basically this basic diet of vegetables and like meat, and that was pretty much it. <laughs> so, wow. try living off um, asparagus, broccoli, cauliflower, turkey, and uh, steak and eggs. That was pretty much all I ate.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they call that the slow carb diet. <laughs> Tim Ferris. <laughs> They've just rebranded it. I ate like that for a couple of years. And it was fun. It was nice to have some rules, but sure, it's nice to eat whatever the heck you want. Yes, it is. But uh, <laughs> on on the career front, tell us a little bit about what you do. Where do you spend a good portion of your time in your work?
1: So yeah, my career has actually changed a lot over the years because you know I've been doing this for close to twenty years. And when I started, it was I was still in that kind of survival mindset where when I started, I started at Payne Weber and right out of college. So it was pretty much hit mm-hmm. the quotas or hit the streets was the attitude. And I was not going to get fired my first job. So I worked my tail off seven days a week, you know, 12, 18-hour days, whatever it took to to figure it out. And I didn't have a mentor. There was nobody to mentor yeah. me. It was just, hey, here's a phone book and a desk and a phone. Figure it out. Make us some money. And, you know, I spent a lot of years doing that and I got burnt out and, Um, it was challenging. It was really hard. And with the other, you know, challenge that I had with the food, it made it even harder because I saw other people making it. I'm like, why am I not getting this? And then, but I didn't care. I was going to work as hard as it took to get there. And over the years, you kind of get, I came into the industry wanting to help people and wanting to help Mm -hmm. teach them to invest better and to help make their lives better. And pretty much the broker-dealer industry beat that out of me. Because it was focused on numbers, hitting quotas, and during that time, it, you slowly forget about people, right? Because we're working with people. I'm trying to help people, but through the process of focusing on numbers, you kind of you you don't focus on it so much because you're just trying to survive. Yeah. And a few years back, when I solved that other food issue. Um, I realized I met up with some good people that helped me with kind of the mentorship aspect, and I had a lot of these pieces, but they really helped me put the pieces together. And because wow. what they were doing was what I wanted to do, and I said, "Great, let's do this." I wanna, I want what you
0: have. And so, and so to be clear, you're a you're a financial advisor.
1: Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, and so what is that and, and what does that mean? So as a as a financial advisor, uh, or I, I consider wealth management. Uh, so what I do is I work with people. Uh, help them with their investments, um, you know, help them with financial planning. Really what I do is huh. I help people with anything that affects their life financially. So whether it's mm-hmm. tax planning or estate planning, I don't actually do the taxes or the estate and mm-hmm. legal work, but I help with mm-hmm. the planning aspects. So I work with people in more of a holistic standpoint. Most people in my industry work from a, um, the standpoint of like, I'm going to invest your assets and I'll take care of you. I look at it as, I'm going to make your life better. Now, that mm-hmm. may in some ways be financial related, some ways it might be other, but um, there's an emotional side of money which my industry mm-hmm. doesn't address. And that's mm-hmm. the part that means the most to people, and that's the part that I really focus on with clients is making their lives better in other areas, whether it's getting ready to retire Uh, getting married or divorced, having a child, like all these life events are not just financial events, but they're also emotional events. And it requires a different way of thinking because it's a transition point and people are not good with change or transition. So part of what we do is help people transition through that change.
0: And so how do you do that in a way that's different? Because I think a lot of people, when they think they hear financial advisor, they think of one of these big firms that are turning out these salespeople. We're just trying to hustle off some insurance plan or some, uh, <laughs> yeah. some stock brokerage. Um, what's different? What's that mean? So I've worked on both sides, so I know what that
1: means very well. Um, on the brokerage side, there are good people and there are people who are out there for the money. Um, mm-hmm. The whole side isn't bad, but it tends to attract people who are more money focused because that's mm-hmm. what you... That's what you're driven by is quotas and meeting those quotas. Um, Halfway through my career, I went out my own and decided, like, I don't want to have to abide by these quotas because they're they're incentivizing me in the wrong way. I wanted to focus Mm -hmm. on helping people make their lives better. And so when it comes to um, the brokerage side, like, their job is to sell product. Whether that's annuities or insurance or mutual funds or whatever it might be, their goal is to sell product because that's how they get paid. We are fiduciaries, so we're fee-only advisors. If you don't know what fiduciary means, fiduciary is effectively, it's the highest standard of care you could have, which means that I have to put your best interest above my own. And Uh it's a legal and ethical boundary that has been created for people in our field that aspire to have that boundary, which... I've always had, even the broker-dealer side, but now it just um, really qualifies it as something that's meaningful. So I can do what's in the best interest of my clients and feel good about it and not have to worry about making quotas or you know how much money can I make off the client. And at the end of the day, I do this because I love it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't work for free, but I would work for free. I love what I do that much. And, you know, I'll be doing this till I'm 100 years old and they wheel me out of there because I can't think of anything else I'd rather do. Uh Um, But really the gratification comes in helping people and and helping them through a period. Um, I mean, this happens a lot where somebody's ready to retire. Huge transition point, especially with the baby boomers. And I don't know who your audience typically is, but the baby boomers are... um, this biggest segment of society right now, and they're retiring. They worked their whole lives, they worked really hard at saving, and they get to this point of retirement and they go from working hard and saving to no longer working and spending. You're doing a complete 180 from a psychological standpoint, and that's not easy to do. People think it's easy. Hey, I'm just going to go golfing all day and drinking beers and having a good time. That's not it. Like, that might be fine for a week, but you think of it this way, when you're working, you have a purpose. Your purpose is to put food on the table to provide for your family, you know, personal enjoyment, hopefully, but you have a purpose. You're trying to do something purposeful. When you retire, that purpose disappears. So a lot of people lack that purpose. And when they lack a purpose, they're like a rudderless ship. They don't know where to go. They, they feel confused. They feel stressed out. They need a new purpose, and sometimes with certain clients, we help them redefine that purpose. You know, I'm not telling them what to do; we're helping them realize it for themselves.
0: Yeah, that's 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 powerful because purpose is what drives us. So, if you're going to be going into that retirement years, you need to create a new purpose for yourself, and that why is is really a huge thing to underline. So, if we if we take a look from kind of a different angle. Right, the mindset of money is such a strong topic because it's so it is so emotional. You talked about something earlier where you said a lot of people are not addressing the fact that money is a uh, an emotional topic. Frankly, if you bring up money in certain circles you're going to get your hand slapped and in other circles you're going to get you know uh, people are going to rah rah you for doing great things with it right and so h- how do you look at money as a financial advisor, or how should you be looking at it that's a That's a great question. There have been, I've
1: actually found a book written about this called the soul of money. There are no other books written about this. It's interesting in the perspective that you're asking because there is no right way. Um, Uh people like part of my job is not to tell people you need to look at money this way because everyone's different, right? Your situation's different. Your goals are different. So, you know, Looking at it from the perspective of you've got a hundred thousand dollars and you're and you're you know thirty five years old versus somebody who's got fifty million dollars and thirty five years old those are very different perspectives on money, and yeah. they should be different you know the 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 challenges people have are different, and the way that they should look at it is different so i don't know that there's a single way to look at it, but what's more meaningful is like what does money mean to you like what are the mm-hmm. um the underpinnings of the, your relationship with money. So like when you grew up, I mean, I'm in Boston, so we get a bunch of Yankees here who never talk about money, right? We can't, we can't, money's yeah. like, that's like the worst thing you could talk about. You could talk about your health, you could talk about politics, but don't talk about money. It's, it's an off, off topic, but um, you know, but when we look at money, like some people, like for instance, when I was growing up, like, you know, I'm, I'm a Scot and we were very thrifty with money. And, you know, my, my father always taught me to, to save money and look at it as save money for a rainy day. You know, he grew up in the Great Depression. That's, that's his money background. He never had money because of the Great Depression. Nobody did. I didn't grow up in the Great Depression, but I grew up with that as, as, a, um, as a principle taught, in, you know, beaten to my head over the years of, you know, you don't, you don't spend money, you save it for a rainy day. So yeah. that's my money background. And I tend to be very value-oriented with clients. So I uh-huh. focus on buying stuff cheap and not buying overpriced things. And that's the underpinning for me. I'm also very risk management conscious. So I mm-hmm. focus on risk management first. My, go- my number one goal is don't lose your money. Number two is pay attention to rule number one. That's the way it's a Warren Buffett
0: quote. Yeah, Warren Buffett. But
1: really, if you do that right, the performance takes care of itself, so that's how I look at it. But other people don't have to look at it the way I look at it. So you know, if I'm working with a client who who wants to you know make 50% returns a year, I'll say I'm not a good fit for you because that's not how I look yeah. at things. Does that make sense?
0: So I, yeah, no, it it absolutely makes sense from like a return perspective and from a understanding how to get to your your perspective on money. I guess what I meant by that question was I feel like. When you bring up money, there's kind of like the way wealthy people talk about money. There's the way middle-class people talk about money. And it's it's not a hard, fast rule, but it's kind of there's like a fear around money in certain circles where you're not really like allowed to talk about it. You can't really talk about what you're doing or what is doing for you. Um, from a financial services world, like, do you run into that? And how do you overcome that when you're working with your clients where they They don't even want to share anything with anybody when it comes to that topic.
1: Um, I I find my clients always share with me. I don't, I mean, that's just part of a necessity. I mean, there's, um, they have to share with you. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's necessary things and then there's, and then there's important things. Sharing the financial information is necessary. It's not important, but it's necessary. The important stuff is like, you know, what's important to them, you know, like their family, their friends, their hobbies, stuff like that. But from, from that perspective, you make a great point because um, there is a few things going on. If you talk to somebody who's got, you know, five hundred thousand dollars, or you talk to somebody who's got fifty million dollars, they're going to look at money the same way. When you, if you say like, you know, if you had how much would you need to feel comfortable? Generally, people would be like, "Well, if I had thirty percent more, I'd feel better. I'd feel like I am all set." No matter how yeah. much money they have, they always feel like if I only had thirty percent more. I'd, I'd be, I'd be all set. And I think about it, you talk to people worth, you know, 50, hundred million dollars. And they're saying that like, what is going on in their head that makes them realize that they're not okay with a hundred million dollars? Like, why do they need 30% more? And in some ways it's a, it's a human psychology condition. We always feel like we need more and to grow to, to be all set. But at the end of the day, like if you're worth $50 million, you don't have to work again. Um, yeah. Maybe you feel like you do, and maybe you need to from a purpose perspective, but from a monetary perspective, you don't. But you know, there's segments of society with different um, net worths that actually view money very differently. So we call like the mass affluent. They feel like, you know, like, I need to work hard, I need to save, and I need to you know, do something good with this money. And they work so hard that they forget that they saved all this money and then they don't actually benefit from it. You know, like if uh-huh. you save $2 million and you never use it, what's the point of saving $2 million, right? You need to enjoy yeah. it when you retire. Somebody who's worth, you know, I don't know, $20, 50000000 million, their challenges are different because no longer is money the same meaning as it is for probably you and me, right? Yeah. And a lot of them get disconnected from society because they don't relate in the same way. I mean, if you had like a hundred million dollars and somebody says, Hey, uh, you know, I want to throw this party. I, I you know, I, I want to throw this party for my uh for my spouse. It's our 20th anniversary, you know, and they're like, oh yeah, here's here's 20 grand. Here. You know, why why don't you take care of it? And they might look at it as like, I'm honestly trying to help you out because I really yeah. like you as a person. And the other person's looking at you like, what are you, an A-hole? Like you're trying to buy me off? Like it's we all have different perspectives on it. And and what's important is to understand, it's kind of this understanding of mindfulness, of understanding the lens that the other person is looking through, right? Because the mm-hmm. other person, me knowing this helps me be empathetic to these people when I'm talking with them because they're challenged. They really, they're good people, but they don't know how to interact with people because their monetary system is different, so you might look at a bill you're eating at a restaurant and you're splitting the check, right? You'd be like, oh, okay. Yeah. A rich person might say, oh, I'll, I'll take care of that. Don't worry about it. And you're like, no, no, no. We're going to split it because we're
0: equal. And that's how most people look at it, right? So it, but even that $20,000 reference is really just, it's kind of the equivalent of me being like, hey, I'll, I'll take care of lunch for you. Don't worry about it. I'm happy to. And it's like not a big deal, but to the person receiving it because they're not in, in the same mindset, it is. Um, so you've obviously, you've kind of hit your stride. Let's look back. Talk to me about what it took for you to get here. um, and what challenges you ran into along the way. So I basically spent 18 of my 20 years of my career doing the
1: same thing over and over again, trying to make it work. And it didn't, I mean, it worked. I mean, I survived, but I wasn't, I wouldn't say I had a thriving practice because I just couldn't figure out that like little that little magic piece that made it all fit. Like I had the knowledge, you know. I I liked working with people. I wanted to help people, but I didn't really understand how I could help people in a meaningful way. And um, you know, I think it was it was a few years ago when I was I was talking to a few other advisors. We were having these conversations, and they really kind of there were it wasn't one conversation, many many conversations, but they kind of helped me understand like I need to look at it differently. I need to view clients in the way that I originally wanted to look at them, which was I wanted to help them. And instead of focusing on the money, I was focusing on the people. And when I started doing that, that really changed the world for me because I started just focusing on them and helping them. And the other parts were the easy parts because I'd been doing this for years. So I knew what I was doing, but it wasn't resonating with the clients in the first 18 years. Now I have a strong resonance with clients because I understand them. Because I had this experience, I just didn't know how to relay it to them. And now when I have these conversations, they're meaningful to them. I, I'm able to make that change for them in their life that they need. And so for me, that helps. Like that makes that makes my life gratifying. It, makes, it gives me that purpose. So I have like five times as much energy now because I'm helping people as opposed to just grinding out numbers, which, you know, if you talk to any tax preparer, I'll tell you like it's just like monotony.
0: <laughs> so... What It sounds like what it really changed for you is you started focusing on the people and everything clicked. Why do you think that changed? What made it click for you? So,
1: I mean, there's a lot of pieces to this. So in one way, I've kind of have a different perspective on my industry, um, which has changed drastically over the last 20 years. And I've been knowledgeable about that, but I've seen it from kind of a different lens. When I started, it was about the numbers and about survival. Well, actually, when I really uh-huh. started, when I was really focused on getting into the industry, it was about where I am now, which is really helping people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Then when I started, I got in this rut of, all right, I got to hit my numbers, and that's what's important. And that's what the industry sees as important, is hitting numbers and quotas and commissions yeah. and all that. And that kind of took me down the wrong path. Uh-huh. And the industry does not, oddly enough, does not have a lot of um, thought leadership or mentors, Interesting. Um, it has some now, but for years, it, it didn't have much of any. You know, you had people who were successful. They were just really good salespeople. That's not uh-huh. success in my mind. Um, yeah. I worked with, at Payne Weber, I had the largest broker in the company in a corner office in, on my floor. And the guy was great. He worked with successful people, and he was really successful salesman. But I wouldn't say that he would be my ideal and I'd want to be him. Like, that was not where I wanted to be. That's just what success looked like in that industry.
0: So what made you have that aha moment? Because it sounds like you didn't have those mentors, those people to look up to who are already doing what you wanted to do as far as caring about the people side of, of financials.
1: So I actually found, I guess, I, I don't know if I'd call them mentors, but friends, mentors. I found people that I kind of, in, in some ways, idealized where they were and I wanted to be there. And so, in some ways, they mentored me and helped me get to that point. And because of that, I, I actually give back a lot now to other advisors. While I will actually work with advisors and help them and mentor them because there's so little leadership in our industry. I look at leadership in, our, in my industry and our culture as there's, there's this huge lack of leadership. And I think if you look yeah. at politics, everybody would agree. But just in general, leadership is lacking in our society. And that's what people are craving. And so mm-hmm. when I realized that, I, I realized, like, I need to be more of a leader to my clients, to my peers, to, you know, other people. Like, I mentor CPAs and advisors, other service professionals, because I get it now. Like, I understand where things, where people need to be to to have that resonance. And oh, if man. I find good people, like service professionals, attorneys, accountants, advisors, that I know that have that, like, innate A desire to help people, I'll help them get there. And I, and I love doing it because I know that I can only help a certain number of people. I've got only a certain number of hours in the day, but if I can help another advisor and accountant help another 500 people, like that just means I, I've impacted more people's lives than just, you know, a few hundred that I can serve myself.
0: Yeah. So a a big takeaway for me here is that for, you know, nearly 20 years, you are working hard at something. And you were following what was expected of you and you were following the path of some other people, but people that you didn't necessarily look up to, people that you didn't necessarily agree with the way they were doing it. And you kept trying it in different ways. And then finally, you had this realization. You, know, you met some people who, who believed what you believed and you went and you tried something different. And it took you know 20 years for you to feel like you're hitting success, but you're, you finally got there. So you just keep chipping away at something, and you'll eventually get to where you want to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, a few years ago when I when I first realized this, and I kind of with the people I was talking with, I first I, I'm like, these guys get it. I knew then, like, I will I will work as hard as I have to to get this because I see th- I see the vision. Like, I see where the end goal is. Yeah. Like, this is where I want to be. I know how to get there. It might take me six months. It might take me three years, but I'll figure it out. Because that's kind of the way I was growing up with my background. Like. I I had food issues. I, I was gonna figure it out. I was hopefully gonna do it before yeah. I died so that I had some some peace and you know and be able to do things without that hindrance. But you know, I realized like you just can't give up. Like you you have to keep fighting, you have to keep chugging away if you know that you're working towards you know, like a lot of people set goals for themselves. They say, All right, I'm gonna hit this uh-huh. goal, I'm gonna hit this goal. Goals are for direction, they're not for achieving. Like you don't know if you're uh-huh. going to hit that goal. Like my goal might be I want to have 2 billion under management in my firm. Well, I may not get there. I may go in a different direction. But I know that that's the direction generally I want to go. And if I know that that's uh-huh. direction, you know, I don't want to I don't want to set my sights and just say if I reach this goal then I'll be happy because I know that I'm not. The yeah. goal is just there. I don't care about the number. I care about where the direction is. And if the direction is there, it's just a
0: waypoint. Yeah, I mean it's like just a waypoint on the map of your journey. Yeah, so think of it this way, like
1: if you've ever um I've read this story a while back about Olympic athletes, right? So think of an Olympic athlete. They work their whole life to be extremely successful at this one sport that like at least half of them when they win the gold, they become depressed. Because what's next? Yeah. You've hit your goal, yeah. you've made it. Now what? There is no yeah. higher goal for them. So Of course, they'd become depressed because their goal is achieved. Now they need a new goal, but there's there's nothing meaningful in their in their you know maybe winning two gold medals, but that doesn't have the same impact. Um, And you know, in some cases, what drives people is not what they think drives them. So that's why a lot of these athletes, like you know, team sports are better because there's a camaraderie and a social element that makes it you know um, different. But the solo sports, a lot of the solo sports Olympic athletes become depressed because of that. It's it's really kind of a interesting a side note.
0: Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, that that is what it comes down to, is you have to have a purpose. You have to have a vision. You have to have a reason to be doing anything. And if you get to the end of that journey, you need to set a new, a new place that you're going to be working towards.
1: Yes, which is sad because they work so hard yeah. and then they hit a goal and then they have no more goals to hit. Yeah, they, they can't even make one up that's reasonable because they've achieved the highest level that they can hit. Whereas team sports is a little different. So that actually makes it easier, you know, if you're in a team sport, because at the end of the day, you still have your friends, your peers that you went through these trials and tribulations with, and you've got that, you know, it's like, you know, soldiers, and they're in the foxhole together. They'll always have that, you know, as bad as it was, they went through it together and that bonding yeah. experience. But if you go through it alone, you don't have that bonding experience that we as human beings need, um, So that has a big, big role to it. But, you know, I think having a social element, a part of your personal progress is important for a lot of people. Um, I know that's one of the reasons why I give back because I want to help other people. And for me, that's more gratifying than just my own success because my own success is great, but that has limitations. I achieve my goals, then what? So now I look at it and say, how can I help more people achieve their goals? that's a greater goal to hit and a harder one to hit. But at least I know I'm making an impact and you, you, know, you create these relationships that are um, long lasting.
0: Absolutely. And that's fuel because that's a really clear, uh, a clear why, a clear purpose that will drive you. But then you also have that social aspect because you're giving right. back and you're contributing. So on a different note, what are some of your keystone habits, Kirk? What are some of the things you do on a daily or weekly basis that make a big impact in your life? That's a great question. My habits
1: have changed a lot since I've kind of rediscovered myself from the solving the food issue. I've kind of had to re, uh, redesign myself from scratch. Um, I find that the most important things are, I think this is probably for most people too, getting enough sleep is extremely important because if you don't get enough sleep, you're not going to be mentally with it. You know, you might be operating at seventy five percent versus one hundred percent. So, sleep, I think, is the most important thing, and that's still that's still hard for me because you've got life and kids and all these things that that disturb it. So, that's important. Um, Another important thing is eating right, especially for me with my food issues. But I think for everybody else, it's the same because food interacts with people differently. If you eat too much of it, you might feel tired, and you might be you know, not having enough energy or eating the wrong kind of food or whatever it is. So I think food is also a keystone habit. It's not as much fun. Can't go out and party as much as I used to. But if I want to be effective in what I do, that's really important. Other habits I find are, you know, we live in a stressful society and there are a lot of things kind of pushing us in the wrong direction. There's this concept that I read about, um, basically called, uh, the be- is, I would call it the behavioral addiction of technology. And what it is effectively is the technology that's being created for us, social media, apps, whatever, is being deliberately designed to addict us to it. They use all the principles that casinos use. There's a lot of science written on this. And mm-hmm. as long as you understand that, it's fine. I mean, people get sucked into this and they waste huge amounts of time. TV's the same way. There's nothing wrong with any of this as long as you do it in moderation. But some people can't stop, you know, so they, they can't break away from social media. They yeah. can't break away from the news. I haven't watched the news in, I don't know, 20 years because there's nothing good on there. You know, they might as well start the news with a disclaimer of mm-hmm. congratulations to all the you who survived the day. Here are the people who didn't. Like, I, I don't, that's not what I want my life to yeah. be. I want to find out what's going on in the world, not who died and burned up in a fire. And that, That's that's not news. So, you know, it's about finding meaning in your life and, and finding things that are important to spend your time on. Um, and this is me. I mean, everyone's different, right? Yeah, that's... Everyone's going to have their own different interests.
0: That's the challenge, right? Is uh, is if you're going to do anything, moderation can be difficult for some people. I'm an all-in kind of guy. And so if, I, if I'm going all-in on the wrong kind of things, life can get off the rails pretty quick, you know? So if you're going to be... If you're going to get sucked into those TV shows, which are designed to be addictive, you're going to get sucked into social media, which is designed to be addictive. You need to at least know, well, hey, how am I going to pull myself out? What's my safety rope going to be so that I don't get too far down that hole without being able to find
1: yeah, my and way that's, back home? I mean, that's, that's important. I mean, you look at all these things like Netflix. I mean, they've scientifically designed it for an open loop. And if you know what that is, it's basically yeah. if you watch an episode and the episode ends in a cliffhanger, it's like The Show 24. They used to they were they started this. They were brilliant at it. They'd stop the show at a cliffhanger. Well, I can't wait to watch the next show. They wrap it up in the first 5 minutes, but you're still you can't wait for the next thing. So yeah. all that addiction for some people is hard, and I'm like you. I'm all in kind of guy like I'm 100% or nothing in the way I do things. I don't do things kind of like halfway. So I find that hard to fine moderation. So for me, I just, I, I just do none of it. I, you know, cause I know that I'll just get sucked into it. Yeah. So gaming. It's important to know that about yourself though. It's, it's, it's really just the mindfulness of how you operate as a person. It's spending the time to think about how you as a person are, um, you know, cause we're all different. We all operate differently. And, and I've, I've taken a lot of time to understand people and, and myself. And because I've learn to understand myself so well it's a lot easier to work with people and help them understand themselves um because everyone's challenges are different yeah you know like our backgrounds how we're wired yeah. so i think really what's important is just kind of having that understanding that like if you can either be in a fixed mindset or a growth mindset a growth mindset is you're always trying to improve and better yourself a fixed mindset is things are what they are and they're not going to change and we can be growth and fixed about different things. I like that. It's not binary one or the other, but it's important to understand that those are different mindsets that people need to to comprehend and where they
0: are if they want to grow. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've made it to uh, one of my favorite parts of the show, the growth rapid fire questions, which uh, the questions are quick, but the answers don't need to be. So Kirk, what's what's a book that's impacted your life the most or one that you're excited about right now ooh that's a tough one
1: <laughs> I read a lot probably one of the more impactful ones for me we were getting down that rabbit hole of the technological addiction of society is um, irresistible by Adam Alter that talks a lot about the science it talks a lot about the okay. you know the the addiction part like it's it was fascinating to me to understand that I read a lot about Personal improvement. So, um, there have been a lot of good books talking about leadership. There was a good one written by um, Jocko Willink about leadership that I thought was fantastic. Uh, I think it was called Extreme Ownership.
0: Yeah. Extreme.
1: Yeah. Love extreme that Extreme
0: Ownership. That one's a great book. It's a really good. I book. just
1: finished reading Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Body. And I know it says, use it as a reference guide. I read it mm-hmm. cover to cover.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a big one to read cover to cover. Yeah,
1: I got through like half of it in a weekend. I was just like, this is awesome stuff. It doesn't all apply, but I found it fascinating. Yeah. And just things like, I think you'd mentioned earlier about emotional intelligence, um, you know, things like that. It, it's really just kind of finding books that are going to open my mind to thinking differently about things. And
0: And I love the way you think about that. I think that's really powerful. So on a different note, from a purpose standpoint, why do you do what you do?
1: I do what I do that's changed over the years right now is because I want to help people and impact more lives. I just want to, you know, help people make, help make people's lives better because that's really the bare essence of what I'm trying to do.
0: I like that. From an inspiration perspective, who are some of your mentors and how do they influence your career?
1: It's funny. We we're talking about this earlier. I don't actually have mentors and this question always comes up, like, who are your mentors and inspirations? I would say that I don't have any one, well, maybe one, but from a different perspective. I don't take one person, say, this person is the ideal. I pull the best of a lot of Of different people and say, you know, this person is really good at this, Mm -hmm. but maybe not at these other things. So I'm going to pull from here. I'm going to pull from here. I'd say the only person that I really kind of aspire to be like was my dad, who you know, has a very strong character and helped mm-hmm. me through a lot of challenges in my life. And, you know, I, my inspiration is to be a parent like he was. And that's kind of a personal goal I have is to be as good of a parent as he was. Because I think parenting's hard. It's probably the biggest challenge in my life. <laughs> and I don't know if you ever really solved that challenge, yeah. but it's, um, you know, I think that's probably the closest to an inspiration that I have.
0: I, I could imagine. And uh, finally, what drives you to live your best life every day? Um, I think,
1: you know, each one of us are driven by different things. My, one of my big strong drivers is challenge, is overcoming challenge because I've had so much of it that that is now the underpinning of, of what makes me happy. So I have thought a lot about, um, happiness, right? Like what is happiness? Some people think of happiness as the, the end goal. It's achieving a goal. But once you achieve that goal, that's short lived. I look at happiness as the journey to achieve that goal, like the you know, the the trials and tribulations for me, that's happiness. It's, it's striving to be your best self. That is, that is, I've I've read this from another few other people too. And I think that's probably as close to a definition as I would find.
0: That's a powerful frame because then no matter where you're at along the journey, you can be happy because you're choosing to be, you're recognizing that that's a choice. So this is a really great conversation. Um, really pleasure to have you on Kirk. Where can people find out more about you? Or get in touch. Yeah, so you can find me in all the usual
1: social media outlets. I'm um, not hard to find, but you can you can find me at my website, which is innovativewealth.com. That's where our wealth management company is. Uh, you can find more about me and what I do there. I'm also the host of the Money Tree Investing podcast which is moneytreepodcast.com. We talk a lot about finance, we talk a lot about mindset and other things which is why I've really enjoyed this conversation because I think this is kind of right up my alley. And certainly we're going to have you you're on our show as well Steve so this will be this will be a lot of fun. But yeah, you can find me at either one of those places or all the usual social media
0: outlets. Awesome. Well, it was a pleasure to have you on. It was really a pleasure to kind of dive into a little bit more about your mindset and how you think about money and uh, look forward to another conversation. Great, can't wait. Thank you for listening to the Investor Mindset Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share it with a friend.